0: From the great state of Ohio, my name is Morgan Shau and today is Monday, April 7th and this is the Next Gen Ohio Podcast. And welcome everyone this week to the Next Gen Ohio podcast. I am not going to do a, a very long introduction this week as we have a very special guest, Mr. Aaron Godfrey of the Ohio 16th District is with us on the podcast today. He is running for Congress and is hoping to replace Jim Renacci. And it was an absolute honor to talk to him and have a really good conversation about uh, some of his plans for once he is the Democratic nominee and once he is elected to Congress in November. So uh, the couple of brief points before we jump into that interview is that tomorrow is the primary date, and I absolutely encourage everyone who is listening to this to make sure you go out and vote, and to vote for Democrats up and down the the ballot, and to vote for Issue 1, which will allow us to beat back some of the Republican gerrymander across the state. And if I can offer a personal endorsement, I would encourage everyone here to vote for Joe Schiavone for governor. And... Uh, Without further ado, I will bring us the interview with Aaron Godfrey. And on this week's episode of the Next Gen Ohio podcast, we have Aaron Godfrey. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this week.
1: Thanks for having me, man.
0: All right. So, currently you are running for the 16th District of Congress in Ohio, and I'd like to go back, not to discuss the present day, but the past. So, can you describe your upbringing, what kind of family you had, what kind of schools you went to, and uh, where you ended up going to college?
1: So, I'm from a working class family. My dad was a truck driver. uh, And basically from this beginning, we were a family that was basically just, getting by just enough. And then when my dad's union was busted when I was really young, he used to be a teamster. Uh, that really started us down the path that really wound up defining who I am today. Uh, so so after that happened, you know, like we always hear about what happens in right to work states, you know, a microcosm of that in my family when my dad lost his union. Their wages went stagnant, benefits fell, all that, you know, all, all, all of the stuff you'd expect from a right to work kind of position from that point on we were really really paycheck to paycheck uh at one point my dad was diagnosed with diabetes and we couldn't afford the medicine to treat him it wound up coming down to whether or not he could afford he could either get his medicine to treat his diabetes or he could put food under the table on the roof over our heads that's no position anyone should ever have to be in, especially when they have three kids and a wife they have to worry about uh and so from so so that wound up Affecting us a lot. And so, so diabetes wound up costing my dad his job. It wound up costing him his life later on because of the decisions that he had to make when he was diagnosed. And, you know, like this is just part of the problem with, with the healthcare industry in this company, in this country. We, the, like companies are allowed to profit off of people's sicknesses and it winds up costing people's lives, like my dad's life. And so, so one of the core parts of my platform, and I know we'll get to this a little bit later, is Medicare for All. And that's a really big deal to me, not just because of not just because of the, lives of the state, but because my mom was also diagnosed with diabetes. But when she got diagnosed, she got put on Medicare. My dad didn't get that benefit uh, when he lost his job because of the condition. Uh, he got put on Medicaid this was before Obamacare, so the spend down was basically his entire disability check when he had disability. And it just wound up. It didn't do him much good, but meanwhile, my mom got put on Medicare. She was taken care of, and she's still with me today. So every time I go home, every time I see my mom, uh, I'm reminded that Medicare makes a difference. It saves lives. It saved her life, and if my dad had gotten the same care she did, then he'd be fine too. Uh, but but anyways, so so where this comes from today? So so I my story to this point sounds pretty depressing. It sounds like a bummer. Paycheck to paycheck family, where one paycheck could really screw us over. My dad died from a completely treatable and preventable disease, uh, but I wound up going to college. I went to Miami University of Ohio. Uh, I got my BA in physics in 2008, my uh, master's in 2010. So so I managed to at least better myself to some extent. Now, this is offset by the cost of college, of course, which is something else I know we'll get into later on. But at the end of the day, I, I was able to grasp onto what I perceived to be one of the last strands of the American dream. I was able to at least in theory, lift myself out of the, the conditions of my birth, get that degree, and get a job that I really like in a high tech industry. Right now, I work for the space program. I'm I spend my days the last few mo- the last month or so making sure that the rocket that's going to get us to Mars doesn't shake apart on the launch pad, and that's that's pretty cool. Uh, but you know, there's caveats to everything, and I'll, I'll I'll stop there to avoid repeating myself. But I think that with with my life experience, I think that we get we get. We truly, in nominating me and electing me in November, I think that we really get someone who is of the people, not just saying they are, not just saying they want to represent the people, but someone who actually knows the struggles of the people every day, their kitchen table issues that Ohioans across the district, no matter how gerrymandered it is, have to deal with.
0: I want to I want to touch on your university uh, your universities uh, in particular because you you describe in your your bio on your website that you you struggled to pay for college month to month year to year semester yeah. to semester and how has that informed your platform and what your what you stand for today is you see that uh, a lot of times financial aid is either stagnant or declining for college students like myself and they see that the prices are rising above the inflation rate for almost all public universities across the board
1: yeah and this is nothing new and you know like uh, so so part of this is because of George W. Bush. So I started college in 2004. In 2005, they made it so you can't declare bankruptcy out of student loan debt. Saying this is a great idea for to protect investors and blah, blah, blah. But all it really did was hurt students. Because now suddenly college debt is an inescapable burden that you will be stuck with for the rest of your life no matter what. The fine print says if you die, you may be forgiven of your debt, but we are not going to make any promises. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, so, so... Like I said, I, I wound up going to college myself, and every month was a struggle. Every time a semester started, this scramble began to figure out how I was going to pay for the next semester. And that's, first off, not something most people want distracting them when they're trying to uh, get their degree. But 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 the declining availability of aid, uh, if, if I started college today, I mean, I have to give you props, man, because you're in college today. I don't think I would be ever ever be able to afford it. Like coming from my family, coming from my background, where I had to pay for school entirely by myself, where I had no help from my parents. Well, you know, a, a little bit of help here and there, but no like loans or anything like that. I don't know how you would do it today. I just, I just don't know how you would. And so this is part of the reason why I'm one of the core parts of my platform uh, is figuring out how to resolve the student debt crisis because. Whether or not Republicans want to admit it, this is something that's binding down an entire generation, and it's only going to get worse. And we need to figure out the student debt crisis. We need to figure out the rising cost of college to begin with, and we need to come up with a solution that benefits all of us. We don't need to be in this situation. Most other modern nations, they've figured out how to handle college because everybody knows like, if you send your kids off to be educated, the society benefits. And that comes back to like an overall kind of core problem with uh, at least conservative ideologies that they, they they forget that investment in society winds up paying off in the future. Uh, but that's besides the point. So student debt crisis. One thing I want to do to resolve this situation is to restructure the way income-based repayments are dealt with. These are, this is probably the best repayment method that someone like me has because the payment you pay per month is capped based on how much you earn. and. Right now, uh, depending on which which uh, program you go with, I think it's between 10 and 12% of your income that you wind up paying your, to your federal loan debt, uh, which is fine. But at least for me, that's still too much because the cost of college isn't just in those loans. You have to figure out how to get by outside of that. But I digress again. So, So one thing I'd like to do is I'd like to alter the IBR because with the IBR, the income-based repayment plan, after 10 years in public service or 15 years of on-time payments, your remaining debt is forgiven. That's that's a great, great, but I mean, that's 10 or 15 years. That's a long time. I like to cut it down to say seven or eight years for public service and 10 years for just on-time payments. Because the sooner we get this debt burden relief from these students, the, the sooner that money becomes productive in society, the sooner that money goes back into the economy. Because right now, when I pay my student loan payment, that's not doing anyone any good. It's just going into some bank's coffers where it's just going to sit. But there's more to it than that. One, one thing that I've done a lot in the last six years is I've been volunteering at an animal shelter, and it's been a really fulfilling experience for me. And I think that, you know, I, I'm doing this regardless, but I think if we provided an economic benefit for people to become engaged in their community, to engage in community service, then everyone's going to win. Uh, so, so the way I see it is if, if we have students and borrowers who are willing to go out there and contribute to their community when they're out of work, then we should reward that kind of behavior. And I think that that could come in the form of helping them out with their student loan debt burden. Now the exact form that would take is something I have to figure out down the line, but I'd like to see it count as a credit either in like time taken off the, uh, time taken off to forgiveness or, you know, maybe reducing a monthly payment for some month for whatever month where you happen to hit so many hours of volunteer service. Uh, <clears throat> But as far as the tuition crisis goes, as far as the cost of college, at the end of the day, what we really need is tuition-free college. Like I said, this is an investment. And back when school wasn't something that broke banks and ruined generations and 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 kept people from being able to start families or buy homes, we had a huge economic boom. Like we saw these kids who got to college; they could go, you know, a year cost four hundred dollars and. They got out of school, they made great, they, they, they contributed to society in great ways, whether it's in technology or science or programming or whatever. And, you know, they were to start families. Like that's not something that a lot of people who graduate college today can do, especially if they're from my background right now, you know, my brother and sister didn't go to college because they could, they, they didn't want to deal with the stress of trying to figure out the money. And honestly, I only got through out of pure luck. Um, and that's not right. Like the cure for cancer could be stuck in the minds of someone who's leaving a, a 12-hour shift at Walmart to go work a six-hour shift at McDonald's. And that's not right. We should be willing to – if, if the Republicans can throw away one and a half trillion dollars in the wealthiest people in this society, we should be able to repeal those parts of that tax bill that – benefit nothing but the top 1% and reinvest it in the society and the economy and the future of this country by providing college for people, by providing healthcare for people. It's not a radical concept. The money clearly exists. They just don't want to spend it on the people. And that's one of the reasons I want to go to Congress is to reorganize those priorities, put the people first, put them ahead of the wealthy elite, put them ahead of the corporations. that are trying to game the system for themselves.
0: I, I want to ask you specifically, you, you discuss this investment and the, the main, uh, the main cry from Republicans or people on the right is that, uh, it's all of these unfunded programs that are going to bankrupt the country and send us into endless debt if we happen to, uh, make investments into, uh, healthcare for, for all Americans, no matter your income or, uh, being, giving access to every high school student, the ability to give them, uh, to be able to go to a public, uh, institution for uh, their, for their degree. How in your, in your view, do we respond to that claim and how do we actually pay for these programs?
1: Well, like I was just saying, if, if they're willing to throw away one and a half trillion dollars to the least productive members of society, and I'm not talking about what their businesses do, what their businesses do, that's fine. What I'm talking about is what these people do with that money. You give them tax cuts, you give them tax credits or whatever. They either give it back to their investors or they throw it in their own savings account. They don't it doesn't benefit the people. If you give this kind of, if you give disposable income to people who need it, people who use a hundred percent of their disposable income, like me or like you or like our families or whatever, then that's productive. That goes back in the economy, creates jobs. It creates momentum. It, it keeps us going. Uh, and, and one example I like to use pretty often, like I said, I work for the space program. NASA used to have a huge budget and after the Apollo program, it kind of got slashed. It's been pretty steady ever since, but, one thing we found is like like the Apollo project getting into the moon spurred massive innovation in our country, massive innovation in the uh, technology sector, and it just created a whole lot of good. I, you can't quote me on this because I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think it was something like for every dollar spent on NASA, there was a return on investment of about $7 because back then we were willing to make the investment. We were willing to say, okay, this is going to cost us a lot of money up front, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. That's the same way it goes for uh, healthcare and for college, uh, for, for tuition free college and all this other stuff, too. Because if we're willing to invest in Medicare for all, are your tax withholdings going to go up in your paycheck? Yeah, probably. But is your take home pay going to go up, too? Yeah, probably. And not only that, but you're not going to be paying premiums and deductibles and co pays anymore. It's, it's a win for everybody involved, except for the people who bankroll these campaigns that shoot down these policies. Same thing for uh tuition-free college. Like, if, if you don't think that putting an education in the hands of the people who aren't able to afford it themselves right now is it going to create a benefit for this country, then why do you argue for any sort of education at all? Because it's, it's applicable to everybody, right? Giving more people access to more education and more resources can only stand to benefit society. If they're going to go out there with their degrees in computer science or engineering or science or even if it's English or philosophy, I'm sure they're still going to wind up being more productive members of society other than they would otherwise. And either way, like I said, right now there's an income barrier to getting an education. That's not right. These are public institutions. And if we are going to live up to the name of these, if we're going to live up to that, that these are public institutions, if we're going to really make the most of our country and its potential, then we have to make this accessible to everybody. That's the only, that's, the only way forward if we want to be successful in the 21st century. All right. answer your question. Discuss- <laughs> yes, it
0: absolutely did. And let's let's discuss the Medicare for All part of your platform because there's a couple of things that I have learned uh, being a college student being around uh, people of a lot of different backgrounds. I have a good friend whose father works for one of the largest insurance companies in the state of New York. And she and her family oftentimes cannot actually support or get behind the idea of uh, large government-run insurance programs for the primary reason that it would either destroy the insurance companies themselves or cause them to go into bankruptcy or cause mass unemployment in a sector of the American economy that is uh, one-fifth of our entire economy. How do you respond to the idea that there's going to be large amounts of unemployment and people who are going to lose their jobs. If you were to institute a Medicare, for all plan.
1: So, so, so it's a good question. It's valid, but to me, it's kind of like the same answer here applies to what we tell uh, coal miners whose jobs are being lost to a shifting energy sector or to automation and, you know, factory workers, the same thing. We have to be willing to retrain these people and find them better jobs. But Regardless, I think that that's kind of, I can't think of the right phrase, but it's, to to me, it seems like we are trying, like they're asking for special treatment to some extent, if that's their stance. Because when you put this much money back in the hands of the people, it's going to go back into the economy. It's going to create more jobs across the country and across several different fields. It might be hard for a little bit, but at the end of the day, I think they'll wind up with, you know, a growth in jobs in the financial sector and, you, you know, home insurance or whatever, like they, they would still be able to, to get a job, I think. And let me also say, I'm not advocating for switching it overnight. I think that when you are talking about a part of the economy as, as big as this, you can't just switch it on like that. You have to take the time to uh, let it happen the right way. You have to like with a living wage increase, for example, you can't just switch on $15 an hour because it's going to cause a lot of chaos for smaller businesses. With healthcare for all, I think the the right way to start is to first just make a public option available to people who want it, especially in areas where the healthcare exchange doesn't have a a private insurer, and then just expand slowly from there. And that way, the insurance companies have time to adjust. They have time, the economy has time to react to this giant change we're implementing. Uh, And, you know, at the end of the day, every other modern country has figured this out. They have. Plenty of jobs for insurers uh, across the spectrum, and plenty of space for jobs in the uh, financial sector in general. So I don't think that we should be treating them with. I, I, I don't think we should give them special treatment over coal miners and other you know factory workers whose jobs are getting replaced anyway. Just you know, maybe they think they should get it if they are a higher income bracket for some reason. But I, I I'm not of that mindset. I guess.
0: I want to talk about your particular race, because you have your primary coming up on Tuesday, and there are, I believe, five candidates total in your district, is that correct? Six, that actually. To be six total, okay. Yeah. So, of the six, I, I believe in you, and I agree that you should be the nominee for the <laughs> 16th district, but I want to ask you why you believe that of those six, you are the best suited to be the nominee and to take on... Uh, the Republicans and to take this seat from Jim Renacci, who is by far one of the biggest slime balls to ever come out of Ohio politics.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, huh, where do I even begin? Uh, so, so <laughs> I think that the first and most important point that we can make here is that if we want one thing that the Democrats are constantly being scolded for is that what do they stand for? That's a constant question you see in the media: is what do the Democrats actually stand for? With me, there is not going to be a single doubt. I'm not going to hide who I am or what I believe in or what I'm going to fight for because of political expediency. And I think that that's something the that American people will respond to. And I think it's something that people in this primary responded to because they want to see people who are bold enough to take a stand and meet it. They they want to see someone who's willing to say that uh, fracking is bad, that we shouldn't be doing it. Because at what point do we say enough is enough and stop exploiting our land to sell overseas? product of that exploitation anyways um and then i think that i think that that's part of the reason trump won is that he was saying things not because they were politically correct or anything but because that's what people believed in people wanted to see that kind of uh you know obviously with him he was just lying out of his rear anyways but you know i i think that they will respond to that kind of Strength of position or what have you. But, but okay. So, so another thing though is, is if we're talking about having a, a representation, representation in the 16th district that represents the people, uh, I'm really the only person there that even comes close to that because uh, I'm the only one that's still living paycheck to paycheck myself. I'm the only one that's dealing with the effects of the cost of college. I'm the only one that's dealing with the effects of a broken healthcare system every day. Uh, everyone else in my race, like, the race runs a gamut. We got a lawyer. We got uh, we got a business, an investment banker. We have an administrator. We have a healthcare professional. I don't trust these people to deal with these issues because they've been removing them for too long. I don't trust someone from the healthcare industry who profits off of the broken healthcare system to go in there and be willing to change it. And I don't trust an investment banker to have the back of workers. I don't care what endorsements they may have or where they come from they're too far removed. I just don't trust it to me. The way I see it is, and, and this is, this kind of, uh, underscores the, some anxiety I may have going into Tuesday, but I don't think we have a shot at flipping this. If it's one of the others, cause they're not willing to take a stand. They're not willing to, uh, to, to, to really stand for the things they, they supposedly believe in. And beyond that, like they, they all come into this race with some sort of baggage, i I. majored in physics. I'm a nerd, and I have in my entire life. I've been a you know like there's there's no skeletons in my closet. Whatever the Republicans throw against me in the general election, it's all gonna be made up because they got nothing. There's nothing they can possibly use. Uh, and I, I like to think that counts for something. Is that we can just go into this knowing that immediately whatever mud they start slinging is all made up nonsense. But beyond that, we need someone with a stark contrast. We need someone who can look at the GOP in the face and say. They're in this for themselves. They always have been. They always will be. You know, I'm here for you because I will benefit from these policies the same way you will. I'm not here to boost my stock portfolio because I don't have one. I'm not here to to sell my soul to the devil because I'm here to to, to work for you. I'm here to work for both of us because if, if Medicare for all becomes a reality, my family, my friends benefit. If a living wage is enacted, my family benefits, just like yours will. It's it's just. When we put up people who are so far removed from the issues, you know, at some point we just have to take them at face value for saying, for and trust that they will fight for the things they say they will. But when no one out there can come at any of these issues with any amount of passion or energy, or any account, any any amount of uh, real investment in their solution, I just don't trust it. So, so I really feel like it, when it comes down to it, if if you want, you know. Even if I lose the primary on Tuesday, I'm going to know I ran for the right reasons. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to help whoever does one if it isn't me. But I, I don't think we can flip this district if it's anyone else. I don't think the others have the energy, the enthusiasm to go through with it. And I don't think any of them can draw the contrast Republicans the Republicans. That I can. None of them can go up there and say, like I said, that they're in it for themselves. I'm in it for you because if I help you, then I help myself too.
0: All those points you just made are incredibly comparable to the points that uh, Senator Joe Ciavone has been making in the governor's race, yeah. saying that he's the only guy that can win because he's the only guy that can both fire up the progressive base, fire up young people, and wrap that whole coalition around into make, painting in contrast with a 70-plus-year-old Mike DeWine who's been around in politics since the early 70s. So I want to ask you in the governor's race, if I, we both support Joe, we've both been working to help elect him, if For some reason, on Tuesday, the Ohio Democratic primary voters choose Richard Cordray, which, based off of polling, that is a possibility. Are you able to support a candidate, in in my opinion at least, who has spent the majority of his career either flip-flopping on issues, uh, fighting to decimate gun control legislation in the state of Ohio, and who overall seems like he cannot win in November— no matter how much money he raises, are you able to support somebody like Richard Cordray? Uh,
1: well, I don't want to get into too much muscling because I've had—I've like going around the trail. I've ran into all of the gubernatorial candidates a whole lot, and I've gotten to know some of them pretty well, especially Joe. I have, I haven't talked to Richard Cordray as much as the other, so I don't really know him that well. But what I can say is I know Betty Sutton. I've got to know her fairly well when she was running for governor herself. And I know that she I, I think that she'd have been a great governor. I think that she'll be a great lieutenant governor. And at the end of the day, I'm gonna support whoever wins the primary because for me this fight is, is too important to throw away and to just, you know, ignore our gubernatorial candidate just because of, you know, I, I can't say minor issues Uh, sometimes but you know think of it this way if Cordray is governor Medicaid expansion stays in place both of our candidates for both the Republican candidates for the gubernatorial primary they're having have both said they're immediately going to repeal the Medicaid expansion that's thousands of lives lost right off the bat Cordray isn't going to do that or at least I sure as hell hope he isn't Uh, and if I have anything to do with it he he won't Uh, but but I will say though that that I think that uh, your analysis of of joe is pretty it's pretty spot on i mean i've been running into him since i started running over a year ago and you know he, he's just the kind of guy that you know is he, he's a good guy he's doing this for the right reasons you can tell when you talk to him you can tell when you hear him speak so i like i i hope he's a he's the uh, nominee myself but if it's dennis kucinich if it's richard cordray i don't have i'm gonna work with them no matter what and hopefully you, you know uh the same goes in my primary, you know, like, like this is your prime. This is the primary. This is your chance to vote your heart, vote your conscience. When it comes to November, we have to do what we can to, 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 uh, make sure that more destructive powers aren't put into place. And I think that that's true here too. You know, like I, I'm repeating myself now, but like I said, I hope that Joe is a nominee, but if it's Richard, I'll, I'll be happy to work with him too. And I'll be, I'll be thrilled to work with Betty Sutton again too.
0: I'll give you my one final question that I've asked all of my guests so far: is that what would you say to young people across the state of Ohio, whether they're thirty-one like yourself, uh, in college like me, in high school like some of my other guests? What would you say to them about being involved in politics and in voting?
1: Oh man, there's a lot of things I'd say. First off, I'd say is vote. Just make sure you vote because nothing like like you can be cynical as you want, you can be as jaded as you want about is going on you can be upset that bernie lost the primary you can be upset if i lose the primary but if you don't go out and vote then you have no right to complain about any of it because at the end of the day you can go to as many protests as you want you can go to as many demonstrations as you want but if you aren't there behind checking off the boxes on the ballot you have then everything you've done has been for nothing you've got to stay involved but more than that you've got to vote if you don't vote it means nothing uh and that's that's a message i took to the march for our lives uh in canton when i went to that a few months ago or however long ago that was time kind of loses meaning when you're doing this uh, but i told him you know when the ex- assault weapons ban expired we let that go we didn't vote the people out of office who let that expire that is what matters is if you vote and so i told them the same thing i'll tell you is, is you gotta vote if you don't vote Nothing you do matters. And I'm repeating myself now, but it's so important. Stay involved. Join the Young Democrats. Join whatever groups, uh, you know, uh, float your boat. But if you don't vote, it doesn't mean anything. If you don't go out there, if you don't try to tell people about why you believe what you believe, then it doesn't mean anything. One thing that I've noticed going through, uh, I'll say, adult life is that, you know, when you're going through college and everything, everybody tells you don't talk about politics, sex, and religion at work because it's inappropriate or rude or whatever. In my experience, every job I've ever had people talk about politics, at least to some extent. And, you know, like, like these things, you have to talk about these things because otherwise there's no discourse. Without discourse, there's no solutions to the problems we're facing. We all just live in a bubble. Uh, so, so discuss things, whether or not you're, you know, don't, don't shun conservatives. Don't shun libertarians. Talk to them too, because there's, they can still have something useful to add to the conversation we're still all human beings trying to find solutions to the same problems. And the more you talk to people about the issues, the more enlightened you'll be. But I'll just end this again because I know I'm rambling again. Vote. That is the only thing that ultimately matters is if you vote.
0: Aaron, I want to thank you so much for <laughs> taking the time uh, late at night for this interview. And I wish you the absolute best of luck on May 8th, this Tuesday. Uh, go get
1: them. All yeah. right. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
0: And I just want to thank everyone for listening in this week to the Next Gen Ohio Podcast. If you live in the 16th District, I absolutely encourage you to vote for Aaron Godfrey. We have to vote for candidates uh, to make the blue wave happen that are real, authentic, and who represent that next generation of leadership who are willing to stand up for progressive values. So I absolutely encourage you to vote for Aaron and for any candidate that uh, matches a, a description that looks and sounds and is representative of the same values that he, that he holds and uh, I'll talk to everyone next week.